Thank you, Pastor Todd. Good morning again, everyone. As uh, Todd prayed, we'll be in the book of Ruth today, so you can turn with me there. Any kids headed to Gospel Project, now's uh, your time. Several of you have asked, uh, before we get into the, the text, about uh, Randy, how Randy Hagler's doing. He had a substantive, significant surgery on Monday for cancer in his uh, bile duct. The surgery went well. They believe, at least at this point, that they've gotten all the cancer. He's waiting on tests back. Um, but he's recovering well. It's still in the hospital. will be there likely all week. So uh, thank you for your prayers and love and care for him. You can keep, keep that up. They took out a size about uh, a softball from his gut. How's that for a pain? I'm thankful it's him and not me. But please uh, do continue your praying uh, for him. If you're new with us this morning, uh, our habit as a church family is to get together on Sunday mornings and sing the Bible, read the Bible, and hear the Bible preached. For it is through the Scriptures that God continually speaks. The Bible isn't simply that God spoke at some point in the past, but that as we read it, the Spirit continues to speak. And so we look here today that we might hear what God has for us. We've been working our way through this little book in the Old Testament called Ruth. Ruth is one of the single best short stories ever written. It is very broadly regarded as such. And today we come to the climactic end of the story. Now, I recognize as it's read in just a moment that it might not sound like a climactic end. Essentially, what we're going to read is the announcement of a newborn and then a list of names. But this is the climactic end of the story. Calvin, who's a new church member, is going to come read for us from Ruth 4, 13 to 22. If you don't have a Bible of your own underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one and look up in that Bible, so you can follow along with us. Calvin, would you read for us, brother? Uh, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadad. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Thank you, brother. Would you give him some props for all those names? Great job. You botched him up a little, but overall you did well. <laughs> Over the last uh, six weeks or so together, we've journeyed with Naomi through severe suffering. Maybe you'll remember all the way back in chapter 1. And we don't even make it through the first paragraph. And Naomi has moved 
her husband has died, and both her sons died. We've been amazed at the surprising redemption of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite idol worshiper, but she becomes a model of what can happen when you turn from sin and trust in God. We've repeatedly encountered what appear to be mere coincidences, only to later find that these events were actually accomplished by the sovereign plan of God. Not by fate, not by luck or happenstance, but by God. We've, we've struggled to wrap our brains around why bad things happen and how to avoid becoming bitter people when those bad things happen to us. We've hoped and expected and yearned to see Boaz and Ruth end up becoming husband and wife. And we've giggled at some cultural practices that are pretty different from our modern sensibilities. But behind all these particulars, what's this story about? Why are these four chapters in the Bible? What does God want us as Church on Mill to retain from this greatest of all short stories? Well, believe it or not, every single one of those questions is answered in the 171 words Calvin just read. The dominant point of the book will be the focus of the sermon this morning, and it may surprise you, but by God's grace, may it change us for the better. These verses, Ruth chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, confirm that this book is about far more than just the romantic interest of a Moabite widow in the generosity of a Jewish man from Bethlehem. All throughout the way, from chapter 1 on, the narrator's been dropping breadcrumbs for us. Maybe you've picked up a few of them. But if we follow those breadcrumbs all the way to the source, we find that the main character of this book is not, in fact, Ruth. It's not Naomi, it's not Malon, it's not Mr. So-and-so, it's not even Boaz. The main character of the book of Ruth is God. This story is about God and God's kind actions for his own. And Christian, the same is true for you. The story God is weaving every day through the fabric of your life, is not in the final analysis about you, but about Him. Your life is about God and God's actions for His own. My life is about God and God's actions for His own. Can you imagine what our lives would be like if we actually believed that? If we took God at His word and saw that everything that happens to us is not random, or chance, that we are not fully and finally in control, and that God is doing something through each of us that may so far exceed our expectations, I think our lives would be full of far more joy, and our thinking would be very much different. May God persuade us of all of this today. So with no further ado, here's the dominant assertion of the book of Ruth. 
This is the prevailing, enduring legacy of these four chapters. God, who providentially and kindly controls all things, is accomplishing the redemption of his people through the most unlikely of circumstances with the most unlikely of characters. That's what Ruth is about. And that's what your life is about. God is rescuing people from sin through the sacrificial death and bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he is catching more and more and more people into that story of grace and grace alone. And he's doing it in the most remarkable way. Now, by the end of Ruth, God has providentially reversed Naomi's emptiness and Ruth's barren widowhood through the kindness of Boaz. And this good kindness of God paves the way for future redeemers in ways that Ruth and Boaz never could have imagined. Namely, we'll find this morning that King David came through this biological line. And not only King David, but eventually King Jesus. This great story of God's love and loyalness to his people is portrayed throughout the Bible in a variety of ways. But here, in the book of Ruth, the love and the loyalty of God a love and loyalty that is certain and sure, for God has the power to do all that he wants to do. And this is what he wants to do. This love and loyalty is seen through the kindness and generosity of Boaz and through the conversion and commitment of Ruth. And the extent to which these ideas are painted for us through these two people's lives could never, ever, ever have been fully understood to either of them in their own day. They were simply trying to obey God's word and live in God's world. But through their quiet, obedient actions in an inconsequential, tiny little town in Judah named Bethlehem, the tiny pebbles of their lives were making splashes in the sea of God's grace that continue to ripple into eternity. Friends, what was true of them is also true for us who are in Christ today. The significance of God's work through our lives is only seen long after our lives are over. And so we've got to live not for today, but for what God's doing for the future. That's how God's providential kindness spreads to more and more and more and more people. That's what Ruth and Boaz's lives were about. And that's what our lives are about. I want to show you this this morning through briefly examining with you four principal characters in this story. And then in the final couple of minutes we'll have left after that, make it a couple of arguments or assertions about the significance of this story in terms of its implications for our lives. First, of course, we've got to start with, with Ruth. Think back with me to chapter 3. Naomi makes a crazy suggestion. Go tell Boaz that you'd like to become his wife. This was a huge risk for Ruth. 
But Ruth went. She went because she had no son. She had no husband. And she followed Naomi's instructions. And we rejoiced in chapter 3 as Boaz shockingly, in the middle of the night, groggily rubs his eyes and then says, Yes, Ruth, I will in fact marry you. then that rejoicing was cut short. As Boaz says, there's a problem, though. Ruth, there is a redeemer closer in the family line than me. And although I'd love to become your husband, God's word must be obeyed first. So here's what I'll do, Ruth. I'll get up. First thing, I'll go to the gate, and I'll tell this other redeemer. And if he won't take you, it'll be my joy, too. So as we turned from Ruth chapter 3 to Ruth chapter 4, Mr. So-and-so and and Boaz have a conversation. And then there was that really bizarre exchange of a shoe. Mr. So-and-so said no, and he took off his shoe and gave it to Boaz. That was their version of signing a legal document. I was thinking this week about why in the world would they ever have come up with that? Why was that the method. I don't know, but I wonder if this is why. If you know your Old Testament well, can you think through how is God's commitment of giving his people land expressed? Over and over and over again, we read the words, every place your foot shall tread. I wonder if what seems so weird is actually a symbolic transferring that God gave them the land and now they're giving the land to another. Just speculation, but that's bonus because you chose to come today. Now, Boaz took Ruth's hand in marriage. It's glorious. Consider with me for a moment how the story from that moment on in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, through the end, how that story would have been written if the broad secular American culture had written the story. I think it would have sounded something like this. Boaz got the shoe and then Boaz went and found Ruth. They lie together to enjoy one another. And then Boaz got up the next day, he sold all of his land, and they moved to Bora Bora. And then these two, drunk on love, lay on the beach doing nothing for the rest of their lives. Our culture, broadly speaking, teaches us there is no need for commitment. As long as you're happy and he or she is happy, that's good enough. And love does not ripple anywhere else. It's a dead-end street. But think also with me about what if not the secular culture, but the, the typical modern American Christian wrote the rest of the story? What would it say then? Well, I think it would say something like this. Boaz 
went and proposed to Ruth. And Ruth said yes. And then every remaining verse would be all about Ruth planning her $25,000 wedding. What gown did she pick? Who's the florist? What's the venue? Who's the photographer? What's the food going to be? Because we've come to think that what that woman looks like when she walks through the door is in fact the end about what all of this is for. The wedding would be the pinnacle. What a picture for us. The modern American consumeristic Christianity tells us that God exists for us and that marriage doesn't ripple out into anything else. Therefore, marriage is about the wedding, personal happiness and fulfillment. Friends, this doesn't come from the pages of Scripture. It comes from Walt Disney. Now, over against these two ideas, in which I've likely offended most of the room, would you think with me about what the story actually does say? Look at verse 13. So, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Now, there's a wedding in there, but there's no mention of the wedding, because the wedding isn't what makes a marriage. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. From Ruth chapter 1 all the way through, we have been rooting for Ruth. And now things have finally turned a corner. She's no longer a widow. Ruth has a new husband, and Ruth has a new future. The young widow who was barren in chapter 4 is the mother in chapter 4. Baron in chapter 1 is the mother who's got a husband in chapter 4. But then, frankly, I think stunningly to our way of thinking, Ruth is not mentioned again. Look closely if you don't believe me. Verse 13, Ruth's there. Verse 14 till the end, no mention of Ruth. The the blessing given to the child in verse 14 isn't a blessing given to Ruth. The tending to the child, the caring, isn't done by Ruth. The naming of the child isn't even Ruth's decision. The descendants listed don't explicitly name Ruth. Friends, God did great things for Ruth. Ruth is a remarkable person. I would love to be like Ruth when I grow up. But the story's not about Ruth. The point isn't Ruth. She doesn't get the perfect wedding and then live the rest of her life with Boaz focused on making her comfortable. She becomes a wife, she has a baby, and then providentially she fades into the background. Now, let me be clear. The point I'm trying to make, ladies, 
isn't get a man, make a baby, fade into the background. But that is what happened to Ruth. My point is, your life is not about you. It's about God. It's about what God wants to do through you. And so, ladies, if you get a son, then make your life not about that son, but about the son, Jesus Christ. And if you don't get a son, don't make your life about what you don't have, but what God has given you. Because he'll give you all that you need to do what he wants you to do. Your life is not about you. Now, how about Naomi? Well, the book of Ruth began with the announcement of tragedy. If you weren't here or you don't remember, flip back to chapter 1. You'll find in the first few verses a single paragraph that a family faced a famine, and the family dealt with that famine in the wrong way by leaving, going outside the place of God's blessing. And then within a few years, a single decade, Naomi's husband died. Naomi's boys took on wives they should not have taken on. And her boys died. And she's left alone. Oddly enough, the story begins with death. But how does the story end? It ends with life. What a great reminder to us of the Christian life. We, brothers and sisters, began with death, spiritual death. But God in his kindness, through grace and grace alone, rescued us and gave us life. Now look at verse 14. It says, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. I think this is incredibly hilarious. Ruth and Boaz got pregnant. Ruth had a baby. And then everything else is about grandma. That's exactly how this is supposed to work, right? But seriously, the women came and prayed a prayer of blessing over Naomi. Now, who were these women? If you took the time to sit down and read these four chapters in one setting, what I think you'd see is that these are the same women who heard Naomi's complaining back in Ruth chapter 1. See, Naomi came back to town and there was the snickering and jeering and gossiping of the town. The women were, is that, is that her? Is that Naomi? She looks horrible. She looks like she's aged 40 years. Can that possibly be her? And who's that Moabite with her? Can that be her? To that snickering, Naomi responded, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. You see, she was a bitter, old lady. And frankly, can you blame her? She faced tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. These women who overheard her in her pain 
now are the same women who come back in chapter 4 and announce by God's grace her gain. These women had heard Naomi's bitterness and her brokenness, and so the birth of the child was incredibly precious to them. They were happy for Ruth, of course, but especially for Naomi. Naomi had no husband to care for her, no sons to look after her, no land she could hire servants to work for her and pay for her needs. Her whole life seems to have been one tragedy stacked on top of another. But now, At the end of her life, Naomi gets the blessing of God. Naomi gets to hold the grandbaby. And this child would quite literally extend her years. She had the joy she thought she lost the opportunity for. This is a 100% complete reversal. For Naomi. Naomi was empty in chapter 1. Naomi is full in chapter 4. Naomi's life is full of joy now because God is good and kind, not because Naomi somehow merited God's grace. The stories made it clear that Naomi was a mixed bag, that Naomi had faced suffering and had responded to it wrongly. She had allowed it to calcify her heart. But that same God was the giver of great grace to her. Friends, whatever God gives you, whatever God gives you, is grace, it's mercy, it's what you need for what He's doing through you for others. It's His kindness and generosity. We don't deserve anything. But God gives in whatever measure He so chooses because He's a glorious God. And if we could look with God's eyes, we would see that whatever He does is right. What a tremendous comfort that is. If Naomi's family never faced that famine, then they never would have gone to Moab. And if they never would have gone to Moab, they never would have met Ruth. And if Malon had never married Ruth, then when Malon had died, they never would have gone back to Israel. If Malon had lived, they very likely would have stayed. If Naomi hadn't decided to go back to Israel Ruth never would have wound up in Israel. And if Ruth had never met Boaz and they'd never had a child, then there never would have been a Jesse and there never would have been a David. Friends, what God is doing through our lives is so far beyond what we can ever imagine. And simply because we don't see it doesn't mean He is not providentially behind the scenes weaving together the story of His great grace to save more and more and more people. And so we can rejoice as we see Naomi, this grandmother, holding her grandson. But let not grandma's joy fool you. This story is not about Naomi. It's about God. 
God who providentially and kindly controls all things is accomplishing the redemption of his people through the most unlikely circumstances. A bitter old lady, a former idol worshiper, and a son named Obed. Let's think about Obed. There's been a lot of pregnancies around here lately, but I'm not hearing anybody suggesting the name Obed. So now's my chance. If you have a boy, Obed is a great name. Obed means worshiper. Obed is the firstborn son of Ruth and Boaz. He's Naomi's grandson. Now, before we think particularly about Obed, remember something that might be easy to miss at this point. Way back in Ruth chapter 1, Ruth was married. She was married to Malon. She was married up to as many as 10 years. And she had not had a child. She and this first marriage produced no children. But now she gets married a second time, and apparently, overnight, she's pregnant. Friends, God blessed Ruth in ways that Ruth had very likely lost hope would ever happen. She didn't marry Boaz because she knew if if I just had a guy, then I can have a child. As far as she knew, she would be barren for the rest of her life. The name of their son is Obed. What's the big deal with Obed? Well, amazingly, this list of names, this part of your Bible that you just want to skip, or you want to ask somebody in your gospel community to read so you can laugh at how bad they butcher the names, and that's its sole purpose. Embedded in this genealogy, who fathered who, is the answer. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse, Father David. David would become the greatest king the Old Testament ever knew. And don't miss this. As David ruled on the throne, running through David's veins, this man after God's own heart, this man who wrote so many of the Psalms we love to read, this man had Moabite blood pumping through his veins. He came from an idol-worshiping enemy of God. God was weaving the nations into the biological line of a king because through that king, King David, we become the king who would die for some from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There was quite literally grace pumping through the veins of King David. Now, we've referred to this throughout the series, but have never explicitly looked at the passage that tells us this, that connects David to Jesus. So here it is on the screens from 2 Samuel 7. So we're fast-forwarding now from the events of the book of Ruth to the life of David. It says, Now, therefore, 
Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. Pause. Do you see that God's doing with David exactly what he was doing with Boaz and Ruth? If you were going to make a king, where would you make that king come from? From the halls of power. From the place of royal lineage. From the greatest education one could ever have. But God, God picked a poor blue-collar worker who was out in the field. Because this is what God does. God works through the most unlikely people. Unpause. That from following the sheep, that you should be prince over all my people. And here's the promise. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with the vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now remember the words of those women in Ruth chapter 4, verse 15. These women looked at Obed being held by his grandmother, and they pronounced a blessing. They gave a prayer that through this one, his name would be extended throughout future generations. That's exactly what God did. Now notice that their blessing includes the word redeemer. Look at verse 15. I won't read it, just glance at it. There's something really strange about this. You see, the, the whole book has been building to Naomi and Ruth need a redeemer. They need one to take care of them. And that redeemer came in the person of Boaz. But Boaz isn't mentioned here. Obed, the infant, is called a redeemer. The redeemer isn't Boaz in the end. It's Obed. It's Obed because Obed would father Jesse and Jesse would father David and David would redeem Israel from a wicked king. And through David's line would come the ultimate redeemer, not rescuing us merely from political turmoil, but from eternal damnation. The opening line of the New Testament confirms all of this for us. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So friends, in the final analysis, Obed's life is not about Obed. God would providentially do things far more wonderful than Obed could ever have imagined. You see, God was planning the incarnation, the birth of the God-man, Jesus Christ, through the birth of Obed. Obed was the result of Boaz redeeming Ruth, and yet Obed became a redeemer himself. One author I read this week put it this way, Israel had redemption in her DNA. Now think with me just for a moment about that moment as these women pronounced this prayer of blessing over Naomi holding this infant Obed, 
What has Obed done up to this moment? Obed has slept. Obed has cried. Obed has eaten. Obed has messed himself. And Obed repeated all of those things. That is all Obed has done. Obed has done quite literally nothing for himself. But yet, providentially, God chose Obed that through Obed would come Jesse, and through Jesse would come David, and through David would come Jesus. Obed's life shows us in such a clear way that our lives, Christians, are not about us. They are about God and what God wants to do through us. Even from our days of diapers. And newsflash, if you live long enough, you're going to have more days of diapers. But God is in charge. God, who providentially and kindly controls all things, is accomplishing the redemption of his people through the most unlikely of circumstances with the most unlikely of characters. Now finally, let's consider Boaz. Boaz's concern throughout this little book, from the moment he emerges in chapter 2 until the moment the book ends, he has had one singular concern. I want to obey God and I want to bless people. He is consistently portrayed as a God-fearer and a people-lover. He's the one guy who seems to know life is not about me. Whether it's blessing his employees when he sees them at work in his field, or honoring God's word by not taking advantage of Ruth sexually, by honoring God's word by providing for Ruth as she needed somewhere to glean, by honoring God's word by telling Mr. So-and-so, you can have her if you want her. Boaz was a man who knew his lot in life is to submit to God and by God's grace do what's right, irrespective of the cost. He quite literally is not motivated by making a name for himself. You see, when he redeemed Ruth, then if God in fact provided a child, a son, then Ruth's land... And Naomi's land would go not with Boaz, but with that child. And that child was supposed to take the name not of Boaz, but of the first guy. He's not making a name for himself. He's giving up in order that another might have his name continued. But look at what God does. Look at verse 20. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered Ruth. Brothers and sisters, Boaz is not supposed to be in this genealogy. Boaz's concern, the entire book, has been to obey God and to love people. And the way this was supposed to work 
is that he was to fulfill the duty of a kinsman redeemer, which meant Obed is not his son. He is Malon's son. And so if this followed the way things normally would have followed, then in verse 20, we should have had Elimelech. In verse 21, we should have had Malon. And yet sometimes, God upends what's normal. Sometimes in the kingdom of God, God superintends what we would expect and showers more grace than we could ever imagine. Friends, if you make your life about you, you will fade unnamed and insignificant into eternity. You will be forgotten forever. But if you live for God's glory, if you live to make much of Him, if your concern is to give yourself away in generosity to others, then story, what, what this story teaches us, my dear friends, is that God may in fact graft you in by grace to genealogies you don't belong in. God may do through you things you couldn't even imagine. God will make a name for you because you've been living not for your name, but for His. If you will live merely to obey the Word of God, by the grace of God, for the glory of God, for the good of God's people, then God will be scooping you up into the story that He's been painting to rescue more and more and more people for the glory of God. And in so doing, He will reward you for your obedience. Because that's what God does. God, who providentially and kindly controls all things, is accomplishing the redemption of his people through the most unlikely of circumstances and the most unlikely of characters. Ruth, Naomi, Obed, Boaz, and you, and you, and you, and you. This is what God does. Now, I hope the implications and applications of this are, are, are already sitting right in front of you and you are feasting on them. But just in case, let me draw out three quick things in closing. What are takeaways we ought to have, Church on Mill, 2018 from the Book of Ruth? Number one, certainly we've got a lesson on suffering. Friend, if you live long enough, you will suffer. Things you don't want to happen to you will happen to you. Things you don't want to happen to people you love will happen to them. Whether it's by the hand of someone doing evil or by random happenstance or through the phone call from the doctor, you will face tragedy. But this book shows us that no suffering is wasted. God, in ways many times we will not see, is weaving together a good story of redemption, a story that will rescue more and more people from hell and encourage more and more Christians in their own weak faith 
and bless other people by allowing them to care for us in our suffering. No suffering ever, ever, ever is outside of the providence of God. And so that doesn't mean we enjoy pain. That doesn't mean we say, yee-haw! But it does mean, friends, that we trust God. And that we allow each other to be agents of help when suffering does come. Second, this story thoroughly convinces us of the providence of God. Friends, the fact is that God controls all things. And frankly, this is not a popular doctrine today. But that's a real shame. Because the providence of God is the foundation of our faith. If you, not God, are in control, then you're in big trouble. 400 years ago, Christians had a much better grasp of the providence of God. In a document called the Heidelberg Catechism, we can learn about that. I recognize most of you read it over breakfast. But for the few who didn't, Let me read two paragraphs from it. Uh, A catechism is a series of questions and answers. They're designed to take the doctrine of the Bible, summarize it, and give us a way in which to memorize it. For most of church history, this has been how people became familiar with the Bible. Here's question number 27. What do you mean by the providence of God? That's a good question. It says, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby it were in his hand who still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them. I love this part. That herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruit and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That is 100% true. That is what the Bible says. And you and I do well to embrace God's providence, not to resist it. But there's another question. Question 28. What does it profit us to know that God has created and by his providence still upholds all things? That's another great question. In other words, what do we do with the doctrine of the providence of God? That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot make such as move. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what suffering is in your future, but I do know that no suffering can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. Because the providence of God will hold you fast. And whether you lose everything else precious to you or you retain it is inconsequential in the end. Because God has hold of you. And God will see that you, by grace and grace alone, are welcomed into his kingdom. Finally, a third thing this story tells us is that Jesus is the Savior for all people. 
Do you see that it's quite literally in his blood? Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never responded to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus left heaven, came to earth, God became a man, and he lived the life you should have lived. He died the death that you deserve. He rose again in victory to demonstrate that the sacrifice was acceptable to God. He ascended back to heaven where he rules and reigns providentially bringing about all things. And you can be his if you would but turn from sin and trust in him. There would be no better thing than for today a sinner to be saved. And there would be no better thing than for one who is already saved to be utterly convinced of God's commitment to you. Because your life is not about you. It's about Him. Let's pray. Father, this is such a magnificent book. We pray that you would do this morning what you always do, that you would take your word, through your spirit, and meet each of us at our points of need. We pray this in Jesus' name.